Yesterday, I went out for a walk with our three-year-old Luke right in the middle of the craziest wind. It was cold and windy, right? We're out there walking our neighborhood and you know how windy it was? We, we came across a, an outhouse at a construction site that was tipped over. Uh, the, the door was open, the toilet paper's blowing in the wind, and I thought, man, if that is not an awesome metaphor for the year that is 2020. <laughs> A tipped over outhouse. I'm sure as, as you sit here in November of this year, there's only le- less than two months left. There's a lot of emotions in this room. I want to share a verse that, that hit several of our hearts this week. Actually, three in this congregation were moved independently of each other, but together in God to the same chapter, Psalm 62 Verses 1 and 2 say, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Amen? Amen. We are not alone. And as we start into the the Gospel of Mark this week, he says in Mark 1.1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's hard to put ourselves in the shoes of of Jews who had waited through 400 years of, of silence from their prophets, waiting for their deliverer. 400 years, longer than the United States has been in existence. They waited, and they prayed, and they hoped. And then Jesus Christ, the God-man, stepped onto the stage of human history. These names for Him right here, we rattle them off, especially if we've been in church for a while. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It, it becomes yada, yada, yada to us because we've heard them so many times, unfortunately. But we see so much about Jesus, even in Mark's statement here. Jesus, that's His human name. The Hebrew for Jesus was Joshua. It's like that's Joe, Peter, Frank, down the street. That's His human name. God became human. Okay, Christ. That means the anointed one. Just as kings in the Old Testament were anointed with oil, set apart for their job, He was anointed by the Holy Spirit as the promised Messiah, the deliverer His people longed for, the Son of God. That does not mean Son of God in the same way we become sons of God when we come to Christ. He is the unique Son of God, always was, always is, always will be. And the Jews knew exactly what He meant when He said that. He is God. He is human. He is the anointed Messiah. He is God. Fully God and fully man. God with us. We are not alone. I read a story this week, true story, about a soldier who was in training. And they were doing some, some drills with their rifles, and it was a rainy day. They were laying in the mud for hour after hour, loading shells and aiming and firing, and he found himself starting to get angry 
Every, every shell he loaded, every shot he fired, he was angry about being out there in that nasty weather for so long. And then one time as he reached back to grab some shells to load, he by chance caught in his eyesight his commander right behind him in the same mud, in the same weather, and his commander handed him the shells. And he said as soon as he saw his commander in the mud with him, his whole attitude changed. He said, this, this is a man I would follow into any battle, any conditions, because he's right here with us. Think of that with Jesus Christ. He stepped down into the, the battle. He is God with us. And we should look at that and say, I will follow Him wherever, because He has come to save me. Now, we say we're in the Gospel of Mark. You ever wonder, why do we need four Gospels? Like, wouldn't one be enough? There are several reasons we have four Gospels. If, if you have an apologetics mindset, a defense of the faith mindset, you'll appreciate this first one. Lawyers and those with that mindset who know law and, and trials and witnesses have said that having these four different authors with four slightly different perspectives speaking of the same thing, even with their apparent contradictions, some, sometimes you read something in one and you say, wait, that's not in here, or that sounds slightly different, but then you start to compare them and you realize what they're doing is they're filling in and completing the picture. Lawyers say that's exactly what you would expect in a true witness of an event. You'd be suspicious if they all four shared exactly the same details. Because what would that mean? They cooked the books. The four of them got together and rigged this story. It gives verification that it's true. There are no actual contradictions, only apparent contradictions. They also had different backgrounds and different audiences in mind. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Two of those were part of the twelve. You know which two? Matthew and John. Mark was a disciple of Peter, and Luke traveled with Paul. But what kind of perspectives did they write from? Well, Matthew presented Jesus as the king of Israel. Okay? He wrote to the Jews. He wanted them to know this is your king. That's why he starts with a genealogy that goes back to who? Abraham, right? The, the father of the Jewish nation. He also includes lots of prophecy. Prophecy is key to the Jew, right? The, the Old Testament prophecies that pointed to him. You get to Luke. Luke is the only Gentile among the four, okay? So he writes to the Greeks, the, the non-Jews, and the Greeks cared a lot about the relationships between gods and men. You read that a lot in their mythology. So how does he present Jesus? As the son of man. That's why his genealogy doesn't stop at Abraham. Who's his go back to? Adam. Adam, the, the father of the human race. Jesus is truly man. He also shows Jesus praying a lot to the Father, being ministered to by angels, etc. 
philosophy. Greeks loved philosophy. So you read the book of Luke and you find lots of parables of Jesus. Okay? Now you get to John. John writes much later. You may believe he's writing to the universal church, the, the early church that's believed in, in Jesus, and he's fleshing out the, the Son of God reality. How does he start his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He has all those intimate conversations in the upper room between Jesus and his disciples that, that the other gospels don't have. I like the way Henrietta Mears put it. There's a museum that has three different paintings of Charles I. If you go in there, one of the paintings shows him head on. Another one shows the, the right side of his head. And the third one shows the left side of his head. Why were there three of them? That artist made those paintings for a sculptor who wanted to sculpt a model of Charles I. And he said, I need all three of those so I can get the, the full picture as I work on my sculpture. We need all of the Gospels to get a full, well-rounded out picture of who Jesus is. So we're in Mark. I, I want to zoom in a little bit on Mark. Who is Mark? We don't have a ton of information about him in the New Testament, but when, when you read a book, it's good to find out who's writing this and where they're coming from. I'll tell you what we do know. You remember Acts chapter 12 when Peter was in prison and awaiting execution, and then God set him free miraculously, and he, he went to a house where the believers were waiting and praying, and he's knocking on the door, and the servant girl comes, and he says, hey, it's Peter, and she thinks it's a ghost. <laughs> But then eventually he keeps knocking and they, they let him in. You know whose house that was? That was Mark's mother Mary's house. Acts chapter 12 says that his name was John, whose other name was Mark, and it was Mary, his mother's house. You say, why does he have two names? Well, he was Hebrew. John was his Hebrew name. Mark was his Gentile name. The, the fact that we see Mark throughout most of the New Testament indicates that he worked primarily among Gentiles, so he used his Gentile name, Mark. Many also think it's likely that he was the young man in Mark chapter 14, verse 51. You remember in the garden? As a young man followed him, Jesus, into the garden with his disciples, a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, the soldiers, but he, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, he doesn't mention his name. It says a young man, but that's the same way John did it in his gospel. He referred to himself as the beloved disciple. And some have even speculated. This is speculation, but I found it interesting that Mary's house there, it was in Jerusalem. That's where the believers were gathered to pray. Perhaps that was the same house where Jesus and his guys were in the upper room. And, and Mark, as a teenager, hears the footsteps as they head out to the garden. Curious teenager grabs his sheet and wants to go see what's going on. Gets out there and things get, get nasty with the Roman soldiers. They grab his sheet and, and he takes off naked. And you all know, if you've ever, if you're, especially if you're a guy, if you're around a group of guys, guys love to rib each other. Right, I, I always wonder, like, if later on in later days, if this was Mark, if if some of the some of the other disciples are like, you remember that Mark? <laughs> I looked up and there you were, just. 
Wouldn't it be something though if that was, that was him in the garden? Something we do know, Acts 13, he went on a missions trip with Paul and his cousin Barnabas. And things went well for a while until Mark decided to leave early. So next time Paul and Barnabas start talking about a missions trip, Paul says, we're not taking him. He bailed on us last time. And Barnabas says, fine, I'll take him on my own. And they went their, their separate ways. But what's really cool is God is a, a God of grace. Years later, as Paul, who would not take him along the second time, wrote in Philemon, he called Mark my fellow worker. Mark had been restored to useful ministry. And in 2 Timothy, the last book that Paul wrote, he said, Mark is useful to me. That's God's grace at work. That is good news for all of us who, who rise and fall in our walk. Correct? And you think about the fact that he likely ended up in Rome with Peter. That's why when we went through 1 Peter in 5.13, Peter called him my son. Many believe Peter may have led Mark to the Lord at some point along the way, at the very least mentored him. So what, what a great pairing in God's sovereignty, right? These were two men who both know what it is to fall and to be restored by God's grace to useful service. Two men that would appreciate this powerful servant who came to give his life as a ransom for our sins. So, so Mark's there in Rome with Peter, and for years, it's hard for us to imagine, but the gospel was mostly oral, right? Mostly spoken. But then in the 60s, either shortly before Peter's death or shortly after, many believe the Romans started requesting a written copy of what Jesus had done. Clement, an early church father, writes of the Romans saying to Mark, we would like a written copy of these events. So Mark hanging out with Peter, listened to Peter. Another early church father called him Peter's interpreter. Peter, what happened here? What happened here? And Mark writes it down, and you and I are blessed to have the gospel of Mark. Now, if he's in the city of Rome, in the Roman Empire, who's it most likely that his audience is? Romans. The Romans. Right, the Romans. One interesting tidbit is the name Rufus. Not a dog, and for Bill and Ted fans, not the guy that came from the future and led Bill and Ted on their adventures. Rufus! Different Rufus. He's only mentioned twice in the New Testament. Once in Mark 15.21, not in any of the other Gospels. Mark writes, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Why does Mark mention that? Well, you go to Paul's letter to the Romans in Romans 16, verse 13. Paul says to the Romans, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Mark included it because Rufus was part of the Roman church there. And he was writing to the Romans. He also used Latin at several points, which was the governmental language of the Romans. But I like this last reason the best. If, you, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Mark, you know it is fast-moving and filled with power and action. And you think of the Roman Empire. They were people 
of power and action, right? Let's get it done. And let's do it powerfully. That's why they had an empire. They were not the people that would love to sit in college for eight years and keep on learning. Nothing wrong with that, but that's not the general Roman mindset. Putting it in today's terms, they'd say, get in a trade school, join the army, get a job, get out there and get it done. They were people of action, people of power. So Mark, when he presents Jesus, he presents him as the servant of the Lord. What's a servant do? He gets stuff done, right? Servants aren't known for giving long speeches. They get the job done. So, so Mark doesn't include a lot of parables in his book. You'll notice that as you go through. They don't care about his genealogy. They just want to know what kind of power does he have, okay? They don't care about when or how he was born. They want to know what difference can he make in my life? So a few parables, but you know what there are a lot of in Mark's little book? A whole lot of miracles. This is no weak servant. We wrongly equate servants with with weakness and downgrade who they are. The biblical picture of servants is an elevated one. Whoever wants to be great must become the servant of all. That's why I called the series Power Serve. This is the powerful servant of the Lord, God in flesh. So because the Romans are people of power and action, when you read through Mark, and I'd encourage you, it might take you an hour if you're a fast reader, you'll see that he just cuts to the chase through this book. Some of his favorite words, one of them is immediately. Immediately Jesus did this. Immediately he did this. Immediately he did this. And is in the book. So many times that some have explain it as though it's almost a breathless retelling of what Jesus is doing. He did this, and he did this, and he did this. Some of you know people that talk like that. That's, that's just, some of you are wired that way. That's this gospel. It is fast moving. And Mark 10.45 tells us about this servant of the Lord. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why we have four Gospels. That's the Gospel of Mark in a nutshell. Now I want to dive in just to the first eight verses this morning. Turn with me back to verse 1 where we started. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now we hear the word Gospel, and because we have a whole Bible, right away we think it's one of those four books, right? The Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of Mark, Luke, John. But when the... Early readers, early people around this time heard the word gospel. You know what it meant? Yes, the great news. Some say glad tidings. The gospel of Jesus Christ is great news, good news, glad tidings. Ralph Earl said it this way. He said, remember when you're sharing the gospel of Jesus, it is good news, not good advice. What does that mean? It's not trying to tell people this is how you need to live, now go try it in your own power. It is good news that something has happened that can lead to your forgiveness of sins, that can lead to new life for you. The the Romans were familiar with this because they had emperors who were worshipped, right? And they had something called evangel. What, What do you hear? What's that word sound like? Evangelism. 
An evangel was a letter of good news regarding the emperor at the time. And they, they have one written down that they found in 9 BC about Augustus. The birthday of the god, Augustus, was for the world the beginning of joyful tidings, good news, which have been proclaimed on his account. So when the Romans hear good news, right away they're saying, well, he's saying there's a new, new man in charge. There's a new ultimate authority. Good news. Same word Mark uses here, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I, I think about good news and I want to ask us, when we're out there in today's world, as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, are we keeping the good in the good news? Because I know in the dark world we live in, there are times we have to speak out against evil and wrongdoing. That, that is part of proclaiming the truth. But as we do so, do we keep the good in the good news? What is the good in the good news? You remember John 3? Jesus said, I've come not to condemn, but to what? But to save. Jesus came not to condemn, but to save. Is that part of the good news that you're sharing out there with the people you know, whether in person or on your social media? The world was condemned before Christ came. We're all condemned in our sin. In fact, he goes on to say, whoever does not believe in the Son of Man stands condemned already. That is not why He came. He came to save. So as we're presenting the good news of Jesus Christ, make sure we're keeping the good and the good news. This was prophesied. Verses 2 and 3. Mark says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make His paths straight. This was written centuries earlier. Who does it point to? Who's the one who would prepare the way? John the Baptist, right? What does this mean? Jesus' coming was not some hiccup on God's part, like, uh-oh, it's getting really bad down there. I, I'm going to have to go down there now. I'm going to have to go step in and do something. Right? This was foretold not only centuries earlier through the prophets, but listen to what 1 Peter 1.19 says. Jesus is a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world was, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. I've heard some people wrongly say that God putting Adam and Eve in the garden with a choice to sin or not sin was a great risk. I'm here to tell you something much more than that. It was not a risk. God knew we would sin. And He knew what it would cost Him to make a way back. But he put them there anyway. It was not a great risk. It was amazing, saving love from before the foundation of the world. What we need to understand is when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that was not the beginning of the second member of the Trinity. Okay? It was the beginning of his manhood, 
his existence as the God-man, which carries on forever. But the second member of the Trinity always was, always is, and always will be God. Anything less than that is heresy. Listen to Micah 5.2, one of my favorite prophecies about Jesus coming into the world. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. That's Jesus. So John's the one who would come prepare the way of the Lord, make His path straight. This was common practice in that day. A king would go to a town and they didn't have all the, the nice highways that we have today in every location. So sometimes they would have to send a, a crew out in front of the king and they'd have to make a roadway that the, the king and his group could, could travel to get to the city he was going to. They have to prepare the road for him to go where he was going. Now let's talk about this pre preparation. Obviously, John the Baptist wasn't a road worker. He wasn't preparing physical roads. He would prepare hearts. He would prepare hearts to receive Jesus Christ, right? Let's, let's read it. Verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to Him and were being baptized by Him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and, and ate locusts and wild honey. I want to start with that last verse and work backwards. We read that today and some of us are just like, that's weird. Some weird clothes, like he wasn't shopping at Hot Topic, he was shopping at Hot Profit, evidently, right? <laughs> <laughs> Eating locusts and wild honey. What, what is up with this? We, we look at a lot of that and say, man, that, that's weird. But for the, the Israelites, as soon as they, they saw that, that clothing and that way of life, you know who their mind raced back to? Elijah. Yeah, he had this trademark look about him, so much so that in 2 Kings 1, when he was prophesying some, some negative consequences against the king, the king's messengers went back and told him, hey, this guy's out here saying this stuff about you. And the, the king asked, what was he wearing? And they answered in 2 Kings 1.8, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it's Elijah, the Tishbite. <laughs> I was thinking it's kind of like if, if you're going down the road and, and you see a car with the, the windows open in October and, and you see two adults and their, their baby in the car wearing Christmas clothes and Christmas hats and, and blasting Christmas music out the windows. You know it's the Swensons. <laughs> it's their trademark. John had the trademark look of a prophet and people were, were paying attention. 
Okay, now he's out there, verse 4 says, baptizing in the wilderness. Before we get too far into it, there's a difference between John's baptism and Christian baptism, which we had at the Lynx Lake a couple weeks ago. Because Christian baptism in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit looks, looks back on what Jesus has done for us, right? John the Baptist's baptism was from the other side. It prepared folks, anticipated, looked forward to what Jesus was going to do. But a couple things about this. Where does it say he baptized? Baptized in the wilderness. He was taking them back to the Jordan River. This, this revolution from God was not happening in the capital city to start. It was starting at the Jordan River in the wilderness. In fact, the folks that traveled down, probably thousands upon thousands, because you read verse 4 or 5, it says all Jerusalem were going out to him. Does that literally mean every single person? No. As we get later in the Gospels, we know of Pharisees and others who rejected it. It's hyperbole, but it does mean a whole lot of people were traveling down. They'd have to travel 20 miles, 4,000 feet down, out to the wilderness, away from the capital. This revolution would not begin in the capital city of Jerusalem. It would not begin in the building we know as the temple that they thought so highly of. It would start at the Jordan River. Now you think about the Jordan River in the history of Israel. where They were coming from the wilderness and the Jordan River stood between them and the promised land. And it was only as they took a step of faith at God's command that the priests stepped in and the waters parted that they were able to enter into the promised land. They would have to turn in faith to God once more if they were to enter the eternal promised land. He's going back to the heart. The heart is the issue. Spiritual change has to start in the heart. That's why it talks about proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What is repentance? It's a, it's a change of mind about my sin that, that leads to a change of life. See, what they needed was not a parting of the river. They needed a parting of their hearts from sin. As God started to work in their hearts, they need to cooperate in faith and say, yes, I, I turn from my sin. How's this play out? Look at verse 5. It says they were confessing their sins. He takes them back to confession. This whole act, some scholars tell us, would have been appalling to some Jews. I need to be baptized because it wasn't uncommon for Gentile proselytes to Judaism to be baptized. They knew about that, but many Jews believed if I'm a descendant of Abraham, I don't need to do that. But John's here saying you do need to do that. You do need to confess your sins. Jay's been talking a lot lately about 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Confession is a key part of the spiritual journey. Why? 
Because if you don't believe you have sin to confess, there's a pretty good chance you don't believe you need a Savior for that sin. That requires humility. And I believe even for the Christian who walks with God, confession should be a regular part of our lives. Examine my soul, Lord. I know I'm forgiven by you. Nothing can separate me from your love because of the blood of Christ, but I have grieved you. And I admit it. Please help me to turn, Lord. I confess to our men's group. I had to do this a couple Fridays ago. We were at home on a Friday night. Friday night is movie night at our house. And there was an old movie that I knew had a great plot. And I saw that it had been on cable TV, I think the USA Network. So I was assuming, hey, they'll probably edit out a lot of the profanity. Well, five minutes in, it became clear that they were not. It was a nonstop stream of, of profanity. And I'm telling you, five minutes in, I started to feel God's conviction. You got your wife and your three young boys here just filling their minds with this garbage. Turn it off. But I let the doggone thing play out. And that night, I I couldn't sleep good. I kept waking up feeling like God was pricking my heart. And the next night, I had to confess to Him and I confessed to my family. I said, I'm sorry. God was convicting me that I should have turned that off five minutes in. And I let it play right through. I ask God to help me next time. Confession. It's an important part of the spiritual journey. Whether you're on the cusp of coming to Jesus, admit you're a sinner in need of a Savior if you're in that walk. Is there something interrupting your fellowship with Him today? But I want to talk to you of what He preached about. He, he preached of a mighty one to come. One who would come with power. Verse 7 says, John preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I'm not even worthy to mess with his sandals. I read something about that idea this week that that I'll carry with me and maybe you'll carry it with you too. And that day, if you were a disciple of a teacher, there were many things you would do for that teacher to, to bless him and help him. But a disciple of a teacher would not stoop to touch the teacher's sandals. That job was reserved only for a servant. And so when John says, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. Do you hear what he's saying? He is saying in his humility before God, I am not even worthy to be a servant of Jesus Christ. That's how exalted his view was of Jesus Christ. Is that how exalted your view is? That anything I have with him is purely by His grace. And I thought about the humility of John. Later on he says, he must become greater, I must become less. And I thought about, wow, when you see humility, it it is a beautiful thing. And this world needs more of it. I I heard a, a story of humility that I'll carry with me. I was having lunch with Dave this week and 
he, he was talking about David Jeremiah. Many of you have been blessed by his preaching ministry out of California. I know our family has. He came to Moody while we were there and preached at Founders Week while I was a young student. And I'll never forget it. But Dave was up in the Northwest using some of David Jeremiah's materials, downloading the videos off of the, the internet and taking them into prisons. Is that what you were doing? Awesome ministry. And, and Dave started telling me that David Jeremiah found out about it. And as he's telling the story, I got to tell you, the first place my mind went was, uh-oh. Because <laughs> yeah. we've all heard of situations where unfortunately sometimes pastors of churches get power hungry and possessive and, and cruel and mean. And I was fearing the worst that you were going to be facing a lawsuit or something. But then you finish the story and I was so blessed by the humility of David Jeremiah, this man with a worldwide ministry. Dave told me what David Jeremiah did when he found out about the ministry Dave was doing. He told one of his guys to go to the Turning Point bookstore and grab a copy of those series so Dave could have high quality, fly up to the northwest to his church of 65 people and give him that so he can use that one. Here's where David Jeremiah finished. He said, because my heart is with the rural churches of America. Man, is that not beautiful? Humility. Realizing who I am before Jesus. Because that's where it starts. I'm not worthy to be His servant. Everything I have is by grace. And once we get that straight, that also affects the way we deal with each other. So he was preaching of this mighty one to come. This mighty one to come would share his power with his followers. Listen to verse 8. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's not just that Jesus is powerful, it's that he shares his power with believers. He doesn't just show us the path. He gives us the power. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. What's Paul say? The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Acts 1.8 What's this power for? Jesus says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and Prescott Valley And to the end of the earth. That was inserted in my translation. (laughs) Being baptized in the Spirit means you're also baptized into the body of Christ. You're part of it. 1 Corinthians 12.13 says, In one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one Spirit. You are included in the body of Christ when you trust in Jesus through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Just like the baptizee is included in the water of baptism, you're included in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12.7 says in that context, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. What does that mean? Everyone who is baptized in the body of Christ has a spiritual gift to use for the good of the body of Christ. We are all ministers who have the power of the Holy Spirit within us. 
And I can't help but think, like John's path was prophesied and prepared, right? So was Jesus from before the foundation of the world, but it, that idea does not end with them. I peek forward in the New Testament, and I see that He's also got good works prepared for you to do as a believer. You remember what Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8? By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In Christ, just like God had a plan for John and He had a plan for Jesus, the God-man, He has a plan for you in Christ. Good works which He prepared beforehand. We saw this on Friday in such a beautiful way. I told somebody that was a part of it, it almost gave me goosebumps and the guy said, they're called God bumps. I want you to listen to what happened. There's a little bit of a background too, but it, it shows how God prepares good works in advance for us to do. Uh, a couple months ago, Kevin and Johanna told us we could have a small group at their house. And our small group went out there on a Wednesday a couple weeks ago. And as Carolyn and I drove up the, the dirt road, we saw a road with a sign that said Wooten Lane, just minutes away from their house. And Wooten Lane is where Rick and Kat Wooten live that go to our church. They're currently watching at home because of health concerns and things like that. And last week we prayed for Rick and Kat. She went in the hospital for a, a shoulder procedure. But when we went to Kevin and Johanna's that night, we told them about Rick and Kat living close by, and they said, oh yeah, we see that sign all the time. So that was filed away in the memory. Fast forward to two days ago Friday. Get a Emergency text from Rick. They're sending Kat home all of a sudden. The hospital's full. We need somebody who could help us get her inside the door. And we prayed, Lord, lead us to the solution. Carolyn and I were praying. We're there with Luke. And Carolyn says, hey, doesn't Johanna have some experience in healthcare?" So we texted these guys. And within minutes, Johanna said, I'm there. I'm there. And, and she heads over there. And I want you to listen to what Rick said after it all happened. This is a text. He said, what a godsend. Kat and her hit it off right away, and they arranged for her to be Kat's home care nurse. A huge blessing. We needed a confirmation that Kat coming home was in God's will. And so she was definitely a gift from God. God still in the business of preparing good works in advance for us to do. So as we look at this, and I'm prepared to close, I, I want to admit that in many ways this year, humanly speaking, has been a discouraging year. A lot of emotions in our home, and I'm sure in yours, but where I want to close is that when Jesus came, he also came at a time of discouragement and great longing for God to work. 400 years of silence where the Israelites had passed from Babylonian to Persian to Greek empires, then a short little period of freedom, then to the Roman 
Empire. And when Jesus showed up on the scene, little Israel was under a Caesar who called for worship to himself. And many Jews, their heart cry was, where is the promised Messiah? Now when he did step in, he he came in a way that they did not expect. (laughs) Deliverance did not show up at first in the capital city of, of Jerusalem. He was born in little Bethlehem in a stable. He was the the target of infanticide by the ruling Herod. He grew up in no-name Nazareth, not even mentioned in the Old Testament, was Nazareth. He came to the wilderness to be baptized like everybody else, as Bill's going to tell us next week. He was rejected by most of the religious elite. He was crucified as a criminal and buried outside the city walls. This week as Bill and I read through John chapter 19, where are you at Bill? The verse that hit me, he was standing bloodied and whipped with the crown of thorns in front of Pilate, the Roman governor. And Jesus looked at him and Pilate spoke in verse 10, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? I love that Jesus looked him right in the eyes and said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. You see, God was at work the whole time. Even in that moment, Peter would later preach in Jerusalem, Acts 2, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. See, as He stood before Pilate that day, what Pilate could not imagine and even his own disciples could not imagine at that time was that he would be raised again, victorious. And even Pilate's actions were part of a master plan. Pilate was playing checkers. God was playing 3D chess. I want to close with a couple statements. I believe even in the darkness today, he is still working in unexpected ways. I believe he still uses his followers like Esther for such a time as this. And I believe what A.W. Tozer once said, while it looks like things are out of control, behind the scenes there is a God who has not surrendered his authority. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus, that you came into this world, the God-man, lived among us, died for us, and rose again. As we try to put ourselves in the disciples' shoes, as you stood before Pilate, and then went to the cross, and 
They're hiding, discouraged. We wish we could go back and tell them, guys, guys, just wait a few days. He's coming back to life. With that perspective in mind, I pray that you'd help us to go out of here knowing that whatever we face, this week, the rest of this 2020, 2021 and beyond, you are in control, God. And you are working your plan to your desired end. Father, I pray as we prepare to take our offering this morning, that you'd help us to give out of hearts that trust you. If we trust you with our eternal destiny and the history of the world, surely we can trust you with what you've allowed us to steward on your behalf. May you lead us as you see fit to give with generous and cheerful hearts out of gratitude for all you've done for us. And may we use it to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, the God-man, the servant of the Lord who gave his life as a ransom for many. It's in his name we pray. Amen.